Welcome to the Language Mastery Show, a weekly podcast bringing you expert tips for getting fluent anywhere in the world. I'm your host, John Fotheringham. For show notes, visit languagemastery.com forward slash show. Mikkel Thorpe is a seasoned world traveler, entrepreneur, consultant, author, and the host of the Expat Money Show. Since he left Canada in his teens, he has circumnavigated the globe over 400 times, visited more than 100 countries, and lived in nine. In our conversation, he shares his best tips for traveling or moving abroad, learning languages, and making the best of the expat life. For more about Mikkel, visit expatmoneyshow.com. All right, enjoy my conversation with Mikkel. Mikkel, thank you so much for joining us today in the Language Mastery Show. To start off, let us know a little bit of your origin story. If this were a comic book of your life, what would the first few pages or first few panels of that comic book include? Yeah, absolutely. Well, first of all, John, thank you so much for having me on the show. I mean, you were a guest on my show a while ago, and I've thank listened you. to, I think, literally every single episode you've ever done on your show for the last couple of years. So when we actually got connected via email and started becoming friends and chatting back and forth, I was so thrilled to meet you. So I'm really, really happy to be here today. Um, yeah, for my backstory, I have to go quite quite a, a ways back. And actually, I think it does tie into the languages and, and we'll see if we can circle back and, and make everything connect. But basically, when I was a child, I was diagnosed with a learning disability. So I was in grade three and the teacher pulled me out of class and brought me to a little room and sat me down and the principal was there and the resource teacher and the vice principal, a couple, a couple of big, scary adults. And uh, they said, Mikkel, Mikkel, something doesn't work quite right in your brain. And what we want to do is we want to send you to a special school, special school for special boys. So that's what they did, John. Every day for three years, I got on a little white bus and I took the little white bus across town and I went to this special school. Now, the only problem was it wasn't a special school. It was actually a regular school with a special class. So you can probably imagine what happened. You know, yeah. kids are different and you get picked on and you get in fights and bullied and all these types of things. Now, this is no woe is me story. That's for sure. I mean, I gave as good as I got. I hit, I hit <laughs> back and, and if possible, twice as hard. So I'm not going to climb the contrary by any means. But anyways, I, I went through this three years of schooling and I hated it. It was the worst experience of my entire life. I came home every day from school and I was crying and I was super upset and I wanted to leave. And anyways, fast forward, I, I did finish grades four, five and six. And then I got to go back to my neighborhood school back with all my friends. And I thought, wow, everyone will have been missing me. They're going to be looking forward to seeing me. And it's just going to be amazing. And life will be wonderful. And gumdrops and rainbows and everything <laughs> all over again. And probably once again, you can imagine what happened. I went back to my no neighborhood school after being gone for three years and everybody started whispering and gossiping. Oh, I know him. He went to some retard school. 1980s, totally politically correct. You know, children are very sensitive, especially when dealing with one another. So basically, I stopped going. I just started failing out. And grade seven and grade eight, I failed. And then they sent me to summer school and I failed that. And somehow I squeaked into high school and grade nine, I failed that. And yeah, 12 years old, I stopped going to school. And at 15, I officially dropped out. And not shortly after that, I started traveling. I started traveling internationally. And when I started traveling, I met all these amazing people. And I really found like for the first time in my life, I found my tribe. These are mm -hmm. my peeps, you know, there's all these cool people who were learning things in completely different ways. And it had nothing to do with public education. And, you know, the things that we were taught in school, no one was using these anyways. 
And I was just learning so much. School of life. Absolutely. Now, uh, I just celebrated my 39th birthday a couple of weeks ago. and Happy uh, belated thank, birthday. Thank you very much. Thank you very much. We have mutual friends who flew down here for the party. We were just chit-chatting before the interview. But yeah, I mean, I left uh, Canada. I'm born and raised in Southwestern Ontario. Left Canada when I was 17. Now been traveling for 22 years straight. And I mean, straight, straight. Mm-hmm. Uh, I've gone to more than 100 countries, 106, 107 countries, something like that. I've lived in nine different countries. I've circumnavigated the globe over 400 times. Um, I met my wife in Germany. She's mainland Chinese. I'm Canadian citizen. We got married in Africa. My daughter was born in the Middle East. My son was born in Brazil. Today, I'm talking to you from Panama. Next week, we'll be in Uruguay. We've been traveling around the world as a family forever, learning different languages, building our life. And from the professional side, I help people do the same. I mean, I don't expect mm-hmm. everyone to travel as much as I do or you know, push the envelope like this, but at least get a little bit more freedom in their life. We deal with a lot of the tax issues, a lot of the immigration issues, the structuring for businesses and financial matters. And this is really what I help people with. We have a podcast about it and a book about it and a newsletter and just so many things. But yes, long story short, I love this stuff. I'm still stoked to be doing it after 22 years. I'm still really pumped up about it and happy to talk to you today. Yeah. I mean, what a story. And talk about turning lemons into lemonade. I mean, you had such a painful period in your life. And so many people, I think, with a similar background could easily have succumbed to so many of the ways that people get stuck in life and and just kind of downward spiral. But instead, you managed to use that as fuel, is what it sounds like, and and to sort of catapult you into this international adventure that's still going on. I mean, so, so cool. Well, I hate the victim mentality. I really think that we're in charge of our own destiny Mm -hmm. and I try to go out there and I own it. And every day I show up, I don't always do perfect, but I really do try my best. And I always try to, you know, be learning something or progressing forwards or, you know, I'm a very much an optimist type of person, which is kind of rare in my industry because a lot of these people are really doom and gloom and, you know, negative. And I'm like, that's just not me. You know, I'm so thankful and so grateful to be alive. It's easy to do. I mean, humans have a negativity bias, right? It's how we evolved, you know, the good news kind of takes care of itself, but it's so easy right now to, to doom scroll and, and find that negative. And it's inspiring to hear living proof of somebody who had every excuse to do that, but decided instead to have an internal locus of control, take charge of the things you can't take charge of. Because yeah, we can't control everything in our lives, right? But we can control our choices. We can control our attitude and your living proof of that. So so let's go back to you first leaving those first travel experiences. What was it like? If you can remember, I don't know if it's the first time you got off an airplane in a foreign country or uh, first time you ordered food or, you know, run us through maybe uh, some memories you have of those early days going abroad sure. for the first time. Well, so my first trip, I was like 16, 17 years old and I was in Ireland, England and Wales. I went with my father. I used to compete at a very high level in martial arts. So I went to the world's when I was a teenager. And it was so interesting because my father had told me his whole life how traveling was the greatest thing he ever did. And I always thought like, okay, if traveling is the, the greatest thing you ever did, then why did you not dedicate more of yourself to it? Yeah. Why did you only do it when you were like 23 or 24 for a couple of months and then come back to Southwestern Ontario? Why didn't you continue on? But I really got to see what he meant on that very first trip. Like this really is the greatest thing, exploring and experiencing all these things. But I remember when I was, I think about 18 or 19, I did my first solo trip. And I had I had been traveling since then, um, 
but my first international solo trip all by myself, I flew to London. And I remember things were like ridiculously expensive. It was like seven pounds, which was like $14 or $20 or something for two place, two pieces of white bread and a slice of ham at like some crappy little diner or something. And, you know, I didn't know anybody and I was in a youth hostel. It was, it was called the generator. I still remember. I don't know if, I think it's still around, probably still around now. And there was like 16 beds in the basement of this place or downstairs. And it was just really crummy, really terrible. I wasn't making any friends. And I remember calling my, my dad and being like, what am I doing? This is crazy. You know, no one knows I'm here. Uh, And he's like, it's all right, just relax, you know, take it one day at a time. And after that, you know, I think I made some friends that night, we went out to the pub, uh, had a couple of drinks. And I don't think I've been alone or had a hard time since in the last 20 some odd years of doing this. I mean, I've hitchhiked through Central and South America in 2003. Uh, 18 months by myself with a big red backpack and a jar of peanut butter and a tent. You know, I was always had someone to hang out with. There was always someone around. I've drove across Africa. I've been to Iran, to North Korea. I mean, I've been hiking with mountain back gorillas in Uganda. I mean, I've done all kinds of weird, crazy, random things. But, you know, I think once I got through that very first day of being by myself and had the courage not to quit right then and there, everything else has been okay. It was like a membrane of resistance of like, you can turn back or you can heed the call to adventure and and carry on. I think it's also important to talk about being okay with solitude. I I think so many people, especially today, are so hyper-stimulated all the time and so afraid of being alone with their thoughts that they never really get it or give themselves the opportunity to do that. And I think, at least from my own experience, travel is one of those beautiful constraints where it's one of the few times when you don't necessarily know people locally. You can't, you know, you could always get them on the phone now. But back when I was traveling first in the late 90s, early 2000s, that wasn't an option. And I I liked that fact that I I could have some alone time and and really just be alone with myself and figure Mm -hmm. out who that is. One of the best things is to grab a book and go and sit in a park or go sit on a bench somewhere and just read and take breaks and do a bit of people watching. Mm-hmm. I mean, like I'm a big fan of letting my thoughts flow and being alone. I don't need someone. I'm right. not someone who needs to have constant stimulation. I mean, I'm a busy person. I run a sure. successful business, but it's nice to unwind and slow yeah. down. And it's not binary. I mean, you need that socializing too. And to your point, you just stuck it out in that first night, then you did manage to meet people. And ever since you've managed to meet people as you travel, what are some of your strategies for lack of a better word of engaging with new people and, and trying to make friends on the road? Well, you I literally just walk I... up and say, hi, I'm Mikel and just start talking or is there something more? Pretty much now. Yes. Like yeah. now I'm an extremely confident person. And I, I would argue that a lot of my confidence comes because of the things that I've done in my life. You know, it's kind of a chicken in the egg type of thing. Like what came first? Like now I can do that. I can just walk up to any stranger or, you know, introduce myself, even if I don't speak the language or anything like that. Mm-hmm. And it's okay. But I remember at the beginning, I did need you know, a bit of a crutch or I needed something that was going to help me. And when I was a teenager and I started traveling, you know, staying at a youth hostel was the perfect excuse because everybody's there for the same reason. Most people are solo travelers. And so it's not weird. They're not going to give you a funny look and and you know, it's kind of a safe spot. That's how I had met a lot of the people. And, you know, one or two nights there and then, you know, we'd go camping or we'd go from one town to the next or stick our thumb out. I mean, whatever that was. I don't know. I think that probably today, I would guess for a lot of people, it's more difficult because 
they're so used to having their phone with them where they can, you know, talk to their friends at any time or send their mom a message or something. Yeah. Like when I started, I was sending postcards home. That's <laughs> how I was keeping in touch with people was via postcards. You know, I think that call that I told you about to call my old man from, from the payphone probably cost me like $20 for, right. for a five minute phone call. <laughs> you know, so things have changed a lot for sure. For sure. And the other part about the phone thing is it's hard to go up and talk to somebody when their face is stuck in a phone. Okay. So now there is really no strategy because you have the confidence. So pre-confidence period, it was you know, helpful to go to an, uh, a place where there are other travelers. Then there's kind of a shared context. One thing does come up in my mind though, which is the dreaded expat bubble. So if you are moving abroad or traveling abroad for the explicit purpose or for the primary purpose of learning a foreign language, which I think a lot of my listeners are going to be in that camp, what do you suggest to sort of balance the need for socializing and companionship whilst also trying to minimize your time around other English speakers? Because we both right. know that it's very easy to get stuck in that bubble and you can live abroad for 20 years and not learn a damn thing in the local language if you're not careful. Oh, for sure. I mean, I lived in the Middle East for eight years. I probably know less than 50 to maybe, maybe a hundred words in Arabic, but in eight years, I mean, mm -hmm. I should be like super, super fluent, but I was in an expat bubble. It's hard not to be in an expat bubble when you live in, in the UAE, because it's like 90% of the population are expats, only 10% are locals, mm -hmm. but a couple of pointers or tips or ideas. First of all, I would start studying the language of the country that you're going to in advance. So at least you have a little bit. Don't show up there with zero and then just think it's just going to enter you through osmosis or something <laughs> like that. Right. No, you really need to put yourself out there. And the only way that you're going to put yourself out there is if you have at least some confidence. For me, I think it's good to start learning the language in advance. It can be difficult to get the motivation and things. I understand that. That's a different topic. But um then it's about activities. It's about sports or church groups or meetups or board game night or anything like martial this. Arts, and, you about or martial arts. Or martial arts. Well, okay. I have a great story context. about this. Yeah. So my daughter's five years old. We started sending her to karate about a year ago and she was going two days a week and then she really liked it. So we started sending her four days a week and then she was really, really liking it. So then we asked if she could do the five to seven year old program and the eight to 11 year old program. So now she does two hours a day, four days a week. So basically eight hours of martial arts and it's all in Spanish. And she has so many local Panamanian friends. So not only is her martial arts getting awesome, She's also using the language in context in a way that's really motivating for her because she wants to talk to all the other kids there. And it's immediate, it's contextual, it's physical. I mean, there's a whole world of linguistics and language teaching related to physical movement being attached to language learning. I mean, it's, it's such a powerful thing. So going back to that strategy, sustaining that expat bubble. So activities, something doing something in that target language is absolute gold. Any other thoughts? I'm a big fan of Netflix these days uh, in Spanish. So I had to get my Spanish to a certain level. And then Spanish audio, local programs or Latin American programs and subtitles in Spanish, never subtitles in English. And I watched probably about 500 hours of Netflix. There was just so many benefits for it. I mean, they're speaking at the same clip, the same pace as they do on the streets here. So it's not like right. learning from a course or from a teacher or something where they slow everything down and mm -hmm. dumb it down and use only perfect grammar. This is like slang and jokes and yep. interaction. Authentic so, content. Exactly. And 
it didn't trip me out because I wasn't trying to watch like Western movies with dubbed into Spanish or something like that, or Arnold Schwarzenegger in Spanish. <laughs> that would just really like do my head and I wouldn't be able to handle that. So local content, you know, massive amounts of input on things that I actually enjoyed. I didn't watch. I mean, a lot of people, when they watch Spanish programming from Latin America, it's like Narcos and Traficantes and El Chapo and uh, Pablo Escobar. For me, I didn't watch any of this because I didn't want my Spanish to sound like some gangster in, <laughs> you know, like yeah. all violent type of yeah. language. So I, I watched more like novellas, like romance and drama, which is not necessarily what I would normally watch if I was watching in English, but it was enough to keep my attention. And it was quality programming, well-written, mm -hmm. good cinematography, and just massive input, man, just all the, yeah. as much as I could possibly get. It, it's a really good point you made about the theme or the topic of the content mattering in terms of what language and dialects you're going to be impersonating and, and mimicking. Cause I definitely made a mistake with Japanese early on where I was watching Yakuza movies and stuff, you know, the, Oi, my name is Tinder. you know, like that's not how you want to sound. Well, <laughs> I remember listening to one of your podcast episodes and you were saying, or maybe it was the guest who was saying that they were learning Japanese from a female. So yes. when they went to speak Japanese, that they had right. all yep. of these like female mannerisms yes. in and I was like, that's hilarious. The struggle like, is real. Yes. <laughs> yeah. And so depending on the language, like how men and women speak can be very, very different. And in Japanese, that's definitely the case. Sentence ending particles, intonation patterns are pretty, pretty significantly different. But I think often if you are an expat, your primary source of input is often going to be a significant other from the local area. And so that is a real risk. So if you if you are dating somebody or married to somebody from that language group, I think it's really important you mitigate that with lots and lots of tutoring or, or speaking with other people that are from your same basic, you know, the same gender, same age group, people that speak the dialect of whatever language, you know, with Spanish, for example, I mean, you know more than I do about this, but there's so many different regional variations that for sure. have pretty significant differences, right? In pronunciation, vocabulary, things like mm -hmm. that. Well, I've done probably 300, 350 hours on italki in Spanish. And my tutors have always been female because I just find it's easier to make a mistake in front of a female than another guy who's the same age as me and the same level and things like that. That's interesting. So yeah. I don't know, maybe that's my own weird dynamic, but I, I just, I feel very yeah. comfortable. And I mean, if the girl's 25 years old and I'm making a fool of myself in Spanish and she's laughing at me, I don't really care. You know, there's no mochismo type of yeah. uh, thing in that. So I don't I think know. There, there also tends to be more women tutors, I think, on most sites. It's, it's like 60, 40 or 70, 30 is what I've noticed. Mm -hmm. So, yeah. Yeah. So it doesn't it, it's not a, you know, a deal breaker. Don't, don't let anyone tell you otherwise. Like speaking practice is awesome. So anything you can get, take it. But if you have the choice, I do think it's probably ideal that you mm -hmm. you at least get some exposure and input. But to your point, you can get that with movies and TV shows as well, mm -hmm. you know, in terms of getting that listening input. So off the top of your head, are there any Spanish shows or movies that you really enjoy that you can share? So I watched all of uh, La Casa de Papel, which is, so uh, I think it's called so Money Heist in English. Yep, yep. It's amazing. And I, I'm actually happy to go back and watch that a second yep. time, all of the seasons. Right. So I watched all of that. I this watched is Spanish, Spanish, like Castilian, yes, yes, that's right. from yeah. Spanish because yeah. there is 
they just do really quality programming out of Spain. Mm -hmm. Like the Grand Hotel, I watched, I don't know what it was, five or six seasons of that. And it's it's a soap opera, but it's still really, really well done. And the acting is fantastic. And they put a lot of money into it. So I quite like that one. Elite. Uh, Elite is also another Spanish program that I watched. So those were all the ones from Spain. Now, let me think about in Latin America. There is a Mexican one. Oh, my goodness. I think it's called The Dragon or something like that. I can't remember exactly what it was, but it was like a... But those are some of the the key ones that I remember. And the nice thing is that each one has multiple seasons. So like five, Mm -hmm. six seasons. And if there's 10 episodes per season, I mean, in an hour apiece, I mean, you're talking the whole series could be 50, 60 hours of content. So now you start to understand the entire, like the overarching story. You understand the characters. So everything becomes in context for you and you get to see them develop as people over the years that this program goes on. Ah, Bolivar, that was another good uh, program, which was a 60 part, not really mini series, like a 60 part one season show and is all based on a historical. I really like history. So that was a cool yeah. one for me too. Would you say that is Spanish your strongest foreign language? Oh yeah, for sure. Yeah. I, I'm, I would consider myself fluent in Spanish, but mm-hmm. it's, you know, as you've discussed on your show, there's different fluency and there's different levels. If I go and shoot pool with my buddy, yeah, I'm super fluent and I can have conversations about everything. If I'm out at a party and we're having dinner and we're all cracking jokes, talking around in a circle, I'm fully fluent. I had to go to the bank the other day to do some financial transactions and I was struggling. These were just things that I don't speak about in a normal everyday thing. That was very difficult for me. So I still have a lot of work to do, you know, and put myself in more weird and wacky situations and things. But Mm -hmm. having friends and living my life, my Spanish is pretty good. Yeah. Yeah. And I think it's important to have realistic expectations about this. I think a lot of people hear someone say they are fluent or or not fluent. You know, a lot of the polyglots I talk to, they're particularly careful about how they describe their own fluency because they've had experiences just like that. And so they don't want to say they are fully fluent. They're, mm-hmm. they're as good as their native language because they do struggle in some context. I and mean, we all do. I mean, that that's mm-hmm. just completely normal. How I always think about it is even a native speaker of English, take like a 12-year-old native speaker of English, absolutely fluent by almost any metric, right? Mm-hmm. Same thing though. If they went to the bank because they've never been to the bloody bank, they would struggle too, right? <laughs> Because they're 12. Okay. I I have a story. So I was with uh, my family. I had clients in town who were visiting me. This was maybe three or four months ago. And uh, we were out for dinner and we were talking languages. It's one of my favorite topics. And we were chit-chatting. And so my daughter, she speaks English, Mandarin, Chinese, and Spanish all at native level. All are fluent, 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 fluent. We catch my daughter dreaming at night and talking in her sleep in Spanish. Mandarin was the first language she learned, and now she speaks English all day long. Anyways, we're sitting down for dinner with my friends, and we're talking languages, and I tell him, yeah, yeah, she's fluent. And he goes, well, yeah, she's fluent, but she's like five-year-old fluent. I'm like, yeah, of course she's (laughs) five-year-old fluent. Like, I mean, I would love to be (laughs) five-year-old fluent. In, in almost any language, you know? So it's just so funny, you know, people's perceptions, how they view this. I'm like, yeah, yeah. she's still a five-year-old. She still has a five-year-old brain. She still comprehends that, things in that way, but her accent is bang on. She conjugates correctly. She understands tenses and male, female and right. gender roles and yep. has an extensive vocabulary. You can speak to her in full speed. You don't have to slow things down. She watches yep. all of her cartoons in Spanish. Her Spanish is actually so good now that we've stopped allowing her to watch her programs on her tablet in Spanish. We've switched everything to Russian. And oh. now she takes two hours a day of private Russian lessons with a with a tutor one-on-one. That is really cool. Yeah, yeah. No, I, I, fluency is a, a 
tricky beast to define, but I tell you what, if I could have five-year-old fluency in multiple languages, I would be a happy man. I, I really think from there, it's it's less about fluency. It's more about vocabulary and accuracy. And that's the long thing. I mean, we're still all requiring vocabulary in our in our native languages, right? Every day. Every day I read mm-hmm. something and I pick up two or three new words. Granted, I try to read stuff that that's going to happen. Sure. You put yourself me. in situations where sure. it's going to challenge your lexicon and, and grow who you are, for sure. Absolutely. Not a lot of people do that, by the way. Well, I'm a so. nerd. So yes, me too. (laughs) Self-proclaimed. Hey man, (laughs) nerds are taking over the world. Nerds are cool now. So so they say, of course, I think it's nerds saying that. So, you know, take it with a grain of salt. So, okay. So with Spanish then, let's go back to the early days when you actually began learning the language in earnest. Run us through what a typical day was like. What did you do exactly? And why? Okay, I'll give you some context to straight off uh, straight off the bat. And this is the circling way back where I told you about my educational story. So because I am a dyslexic, because I was diagnosed with dyslexia, this was my quote unquote learning disability. They never sent me to a language program growing up. So everyone else would do French and Mikhail did nothing. He only did Mm. English. So I had no experience with learning a foreign language until I started hitchhiking and backpacking in Central and South America. Then I spent five weeks doing one-on-one lessons in Antigua in Guatemala. I lived in Guatemala for five months, but I did lessons like five, about five hours a day, five, six days a week and lived with a local family. And I went from knowing the word hola to being able to have conversations in just over a month. Then I traveled all through Central and South America. So I got lots of practice. And then there was a, I want to call it 18 year gap where I pretty much did not use Spanish whatsoever because I lived in Australia and I was three years in Australia. I was in New Zealand for a year and Singapore for a year and eight years in Abu Dhabi. And there was just never a time to use it. So I just, I lost all interest and I got interested in other languages and Chinese, like my wife speaks Chinese and maybe a little bit in Arabic and things like this. But then when we came back to Latin America, which was about three years ago, I hit the ground running. Like, I mean, within the first week, I picked up Ollie Richards course. He's a very good friend of mine, which I know he's a very good friend of yours Mm -hmm. as well. And I started working through that. I mean, I was working Spanish uncovered, correct. Spanish uncovered right at the very beginning. And I mean, I was studying that before we even had furniture in the house. I remember sitting on the ground in my living room on a camp mat or something like that, because our furniture hadn't arrived and I was going through that. Then I found out about italki and I started doing lessons on that. And I, you know, was just using my phone and just having really brutal conversations. And I would try to do seven days a week or at least six days a week. You know, I tried to do exactly the same time. Yeah. So 10 AM, I knew it was Spanish time. I think a lot of times I took Sundays off, but otherwise I would go. And there were even points in my life where I was doing like two hours of italki a day and then a little bit of Ollie's and then watching two, three hours of Netflix at night. Because I read that, or I watched a video that said, you need about 600 hours of active study in Spanish to go from zero to fluent, if you're coming from English as and into, it was like basically Portuguese, Spanish, Italian, French. So some of these romance languages. So I had this idea in my head, all right, if I can do 600 hours of study, let's focus on that. Let's not focus on being fluent. Let's not focus on you know, milestones in my conversation. Let's just show up every day and spend a certain amount of time and give it everything I've got in that hour, two hours. And that's what I did. And I went from, I think you would call it a a false beginner start. Mm -hmm. I remember you, you told me that phrase, a false beginner start. 
um, to quite fluent. And I would say about six months, but really mm-hmm. at about a year, then I started to feel really comfortable. Yeah. Maybe like B2, if you know that CF. I don't really CFR. know the, yeah. uh, the European systems. I didn't, cause I didn't follow that type of coursework and I didn't go right. to a classroom. I mean, I was watching La Casa de Papel and that was my sure. study time, you sure. know? Yeah. I, I want to underscore something that you just said, which I think is so important is you focused on the one thing that you can, can truly control, which is your time. Going back to the beginning of the conversation about that internal locus of control, mm-hmm. you can't control how fast you're acquiring the language, right? You can't control these exact milestones. And I think some of those can be helpful potentially to motivate you or to kind of have something to aim at. But I think so many people get stuck on these external uncontrollable things and then they get demoralized and demotivated when they don't hit that goal or whatever by a certain point in their journey. For sure. So I think that's so smart. I just did math. I mean, I looked, okay. 600 hours. All right. If I take out Sundays, how many days is that during the year? So I need to study, you know, this many hours a day so that in 12 months, I've hit my goal of 600 hours. And then I kind of look back and go, all right, where am I? Do I need to study more? Do I need to, you know, is it uh, a maintenance? I mean, the last couple of months I haven't studied at all. I mean, all of 2022, I haven't studied one hour, but I probably will pick up again and start doing a lot of things. I mean, we've just had so much going on with my birthday party, which we mentioned. We had basically a hundred of my clients and friends fly in from all over the planet down to Panama to celebrate with me. We had a huge event and it was, it's basically been a month of partying from with people (laughs) from all over the planet. Chris, who we both know, he flew in from Portugal. I had other friends fly in from Holland. I had people from all over the place. So that's been my focus. But I think, you know, in the next couple of months, I will get back into it and I will try to get, you know, to the next level, whatever that might be for me. What do you think that will look like in terms of habits and activity? I think the main thing that I will focus on is, like I told you, I really like history. So lately I've been watching documentaries, history documentaries, or documentaries on, doesn't have to be like ancient history, can just be things that happened in the last hundred years. So maybe I might watch an hour or two hours here and there a few times a week. I think maybe I'll start replacing that time back with Spanish programming. And if I can get in you know, 10 hours of programming in Spanish, which is a lot of TV for me. I mean, I'm not a big TV or movie guy, but I'd probably push it a little bit because I know I'm getting double benefit. And if I can find the right programs that scratch that itch for me, then 10 hours a week is still, if you know, 52 weeks, that's another 500 hours. If I can go from, yeah. you know, I don't even know how many hours I've studied now. I'd have to look at my diary, but I mean, I recorded everything, but I know in that first year I hit roughly 600 hours, maybe 570 or something. It's a lot. I I think a lot of people overestimate how much time they spend actively learning languages versus the feeling that, oh, I'm spending all this time studying foreign languages. I do a thing about once a quarter, I try to record everything I do in a day. So I have a little app called A Tracker, something like that. Anyway, literally every time I change tasks, I'll just... record it down to like five minute increments wow. and then do it over two weeks and then review the totals. And it always blows me away. It always <laughs> shocks me and depresses me a little bit. How Facebook, much Facebook, Facebook, Twitter, well, Twitter, Twitter, I quit, Facebook, Facebook, it used Instagram. to be that I quit, I quit social media completely a couple of years ago. So good that, for you. that is out of the equation, but, but still, yeah, the amount of time spent watching TV is way more than I ever expect and not necessarily in target languages either, which is like, mm-hmm. I kick myself for the amount of time that I'd be spending in language apps versus actually directly learning languages via listening to authentic content or reading authentic content. Mm-hmm. In my mind, it was like, oh, you know, it's a, it's pretty balanced. And I always advocate that. Sure. Well, looking at the numbers, the numbers don't lie. I, I was letting <laughs> myself get wrapped up into the game too much. 
Sure, sure, sure. Not doing the real thing enough. And so I really... I think what I'm going to focus on is just swapping out things I normally do with doing it in the target. Yeah. Like, I'm so smart. I'm a voracious reader. I read three hours a day, every day, no matter what. And I mean, this is on top of my job of researching things for clients or, you know, working with the tax accountants. I mean, that's education and work combined. But I mean, I study for an hour in the morning and I read for two, three hours at night. That's all done in English. I'm reading business books and marketing books and tax Mm -hmm. books and law books and these types of things. If I can start swapping that out for similar content in Spanish, I mean, reading a Spanish law book, I don't know if I'm quite at that level, but you got to start somewhere, I suppose. And you have the content knowledge, I think, which will help you both with interests, but also probably making it more comprehensible that would be for yeah. somebody else. I mean, I, I'm I that way with, with reading, like I can read Japanese books, for example, about linguistics or about Japanese in Japanese. And because sure. I'm fascinated by it and I know a lot of the linguistic concepts, I can make sense of it. Whereas a material and another topic of that same level would be way over my head and I would lose interest. Sure. And not get through it. Well, I, you know, I'm, I'm kind of thinking this through as we're talking, because I haven't really explored a lot of these ideas myself on the reading, but take, for example, reading Panamanian legal structures in Spanish, that's actually excellent because my business partner is a Panamanian lawyer and I just have to rely on her for all of these types of things. But instead of getting her to translate the content, if I could read it or the company formation or how we do the private interest foundation and the laws surrounding it and the registry, if I could do all of that stuff myself, that would be a huge boon to my business. You know, right. that would be massive. So maybe right. I will start struggling through those things. And if I even only get through a page in a in a session, at least that's one page more than if I had done nothing. So yeah, I, I like that idea of just swapping out habits. I think that's so, I mean, that's just how habit formation works. I think, well, anyway, regardless of the habit, whether it's language learning or anything else, it's either swapping out or stacking something on top of something you're already doing because trying to build a habit from zero, we all know is, is a lot harder than trying to just add on 5% of something you're already doing. So we talked a little bit about how you learned Spanish earlier on, how you have been learning it when you were kind of getting back into it again after traveling extensively and then what you'll do next. What about other languages? Okay. So I have attempted Chinese many times. It's a difficult one. I will not lie. Um, For many reasons, not the least of which is that your spouse speaks that language. And I, I think a lot of people assume that if you're married to somebody who speaks a language, that that's just like this linguistic gift. This is just a pass. You're just going to get that language for free. And it, if anything, it can be even more challenging, at least from people I know that have that experience. Okay. My wife is brilliant. First off the bat. I mean, she speaks English at such a high level that I never have to slow down when I'm talking to her. She, she gets everything. She's so fluent in English. Then she's born and raised in China, in mainland China. So Mandarin's her first language. Then she speaks Korean, and now she's learning Spanish. So in the house, she speaks Chinese with our daughter. Well, we have two kids, but our our son is only 10 months old. So I do hear Chinese all day long. In our house is always English, Spanish, and Chinese at the dinner table, around the house, nonstop. And I I homeschool my kids. I work from home. Uh, We're close-knit family. We travel around the world together. So I do hear a lot of Chinese, which I think is going to be a massive benefit for me 
next time I decide that I want to study Chinese. Sure. But in the past, when I was like, ask her to teach me Chinese, it never happens. We always revert back to English. Of course. And we never set off, like set the time. It's always like, oh, we'll do it later. We'll do it later. And then yeah. it, we'll do it tomorrow. We'll do it next week. With italki, it works better because I'm yeah. paying money and it's on my calendar. And there's another human being who's waiting for me on the other end. Right. So when I decide I want to learn Chinese again, mm -hmm. I don't think I will try to study with my wife. I think I will try to study with someone on italki. Yep. And then if I have questions in the interim or something like that, I can, I can pick her brain. But I think, yes, I think that there are advantages and disadvantages. The advantage, like I said, I have an ear for it. I can, mm -hmm. I know when my daughter and mama are talking crap about me or cracking <laughs> jokes about me, you know, I know when she's talking to her folks back in China, the gist of the conversation, you know, I can kind of follow along kind of what's happening um, where before it was just noise, like it was just pure right. noise. I do have the motivation because my mother and father-in-law don't speak English at all. So, and they'll never learn. So it's really yeah. on my side to learn Chinese, which is great. I'm, I'm super excited for that. You have a why, a, a very like real purpose, which is powerful. Yeah. What you're saying about italki is, is really wise. And I think that lines up with what I have observed and experienced as well. Because with your spouse, I mean, your primary goal is the relationship and your family and, you know, raising kids and running a household. The language is a, a nice little side bonus, but it can not be and probably never should be the primary thing. Um, exactly. Well, you can also think that just because I'm not learning Chinese doesn't mean that I'm not learning about Chinese culture. Sure. Chinese history, Chinese uh, food and cuisine and mannerisms and how someone from mainland China views the world, their perspective. I learn from my wife every single day, these types of things and have for years, you know, and it makes it way more interesting. I mean, I've been to China probably 20 or 30 times mm -hmm. and, you know, having those insights gives me a lot more knowledge into the culture, even if I can't speak the language. That makes sense. It does, one hundred percent. To your point earlier, I think when you do actively get to that stage, it's going to come a lot quicker because you have that substrate already built. You know, foundations there. You just got to frame the house and put on the drywall. So, well, when you do get to that stage, let me know. I'll, I will uh, share a, a mountain of resources. Excellent. So, for those that are thinking about moving abroad, I know that COVID kind of put a damper on a lot of people's travel plans, but now that things are starting to open up again a bit. Uh, if somebody's listening and they think, okay, you know what? I want to move to China or I want to move to Panama or I want to move to Japan, wherever it is to learn that language. What are three to five bits of advice you have having traveled so much yourself and also that you work full-time with expats relocating abroad? Okay. Uh, in no particular order, I would definitely start learning the language before you go. At least have some type of a background in it. Uh, you know, get a schedule in place where you're studying the same time every single day, no matter what, come hell or high water, you're going to put in that time. Don't worry about, you know, was it a good session? How much did you learn? You know, anything like this, just show up, give the absolute best you can. For me, like 9, 10 a.m. was excellent for active studying. And then at nighttime, doing more passive like the Netflix, which we already discussed. Yep. So I guess that's maybe. I guess that's kind of two tips in there. Try to make friends on day one when you get into the country. 
joinmeetup.com or internations or some of these other websites that are basically matchmaker events for, for friendships around certain topics. Try to find a sport you can eat. I mean, I have two perspectives on this. Either try to find the sport that you're already interested in back in your home country and join the league or the association or something like that, or find a sport that you know absolutely nothing about, but has some cultural relevance to it right. and join that. Like, for example, when I lived in Australia, cricket was huge there. So we used to go and watch some cricket matches. You know, that would be a cool thing. If I was moving to India, or Pakistan or something like that, I would do the exact same thing. And I would join the cricket club and I would find other friends who were into cricket and I would learn Hindi through them. When I lived in New Zealand, it was really popular for rugby, the All Blacks. So we would go and watch the sevens and we went and watched those types of things. I mean, if you were moving to South Africa or something like that, and rugby is massively important there and you wanted to learn Afrikaans, well, then find the Afrikaans club that plays rugby and join in that. I mean, I'm just using a couple of examples from my life because I can't really think of any other sports that we didn't have in North America that we had overseas. But I think it's pretty easy if you get creative on how you can figure this stuff out. Or you can just join tennis or squash or, you know, I've never played squash before in my life, but I might go out there and join a squash club or get a couple of guys that I know that are into squash who are Panamanian and see if they'll let me tag along. I think that's a great way to do it. And then go out for a beer afterwards with them. And I mean, if you can do those things right at the beginning, you're going to set up your entire expat experience. If you're American or Canadian, you move overseas and you only spend time with Americans and Canadians, you're still going to have a cultural experience. It'll still seep through, but it's not going to be to the depth. And there's right. just so much to be said for dealing with people in their language, on their terms, in their country, where you're on uneven footing. It just gives you so much more context. And I think it just shows so much respect. Even just a little bit can go a very long way. For so sure. I, don't, I don't know how many tips that is, but I, I think that's where I would start if I had to do this all Good again. Good ones for sure. And it just makes it more fun. That's kind of the, sure. the bottom line. I mean, you, you spend all this effort and money to get your butt overseas. And if you're just going to keep doing what you're doing back at home and talking to the same kind of people you knew back home, you know, what kind of, what's the point of it, right? Mm-hmm. I think it can be good to have something from back home. So there's some anchoring. Sure. You you know, it can be stressful. It can be a lot to uh, understand. Like your time in Japan, I remember you were saying you were out in small villages and stuff like that sometimes. My first year, I was very rural. rural. Yeah. yeah. So that must have been a lot of emotions for you to work through. Now, if you had a buddy who was your same age, who was also from the United States, it was going through a similar thing and you guys could you know, meet right. up for beers once or twice a week and just complain and laugh and right. just and talk we did. about stuff. Yeah, yeah. It, it was once a month because it was so far away. You know, they were hours, sure. hours away, but yeah, I did, I did have that. And you do need that pressure release valve for sure. Exactly. Um, yeah, I think like in all these things, there's always gonna be a tension between what is most effective on one end and then what is most sustainable and enjoyable on the other. Yeah, And so living your whole life in an expat bubble is going to be really easy and comfortable and you're going to learn almost nothing. And then you can go the other extreme where you shun other foreigners and never, ever, ever speak your target language. And, you know, you say, I'm going to become this local culture on the other extreme. So yeah, probably somewhere in the middle there, there's a, a healthy balance point. Yeah, because your sure. point of longevity is so important. If you push it so extreme that you get fed up right. and you end up quitting early, 
then you're not going to get as far. But if you can have these pressure builds and things built in, then I think you're going to be way better off. Definitely. Yeah. I remember Tim Ferriss saying that the perfect diet is the one you stick to, right? Sure. Same thing with learning language or anything else. It has to be sustainable. Anything you've changed your mind about in terms of language learning or travel hacking or living abroad? All right. I have one. So the common narrative that you will hear is that children learn languages easier. Mm. Now, having a daughter who is, I guess, a polyglot, I mean, she speaks three languages fluently and in different languages, not not like all highly correlated ones, and learning Russian very well now, which is another, you know, completely different type of language. I don't think that it actually has anything to do with a child's brain being a sponge and just picking up information. You know, that's that's what everybody says. What I think it is, is my kid has so much time. I mean, I'm like, what did you do today? She's like, play, 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 play. And I'm like, that's it. She's like, play, 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 play. That's all she does all day long is play. But we have a nanny here who speaks only Spanish. We purposefully hired a nanny who only speaks Spanish. So she gets five hours of playtime with her every day, just in Spanish. And then she gets two hours of private one-on-one Russian lessons. And then she goes to karate for two hours a day in Spanish. And then she speaks to my wife in Chinese for a couple of hours. And they, my wife reads to her and everything like that. And then we ha- I hang out with my kids every night after work. And that's all in English. And my mother lives here in Panama. So my mom spends a t- ton of time with her. And that's all in English. It's the time. If I yeah. spent eight hours a day, seven days a week, just in Spanish, and I did it for years on end, yeah. you better believe my Spanish would just be excellent. And the same thing in Mandarin. She's been learning Mandarin since the moment she was born. My wife has been speaking Mandarin mm-hmm. to her. And that's it. She never, ever, ever speaks to her in English. When we're having a conversation, she switches language depending who she's speaking mm-hmm. with. So when she turns to me, she speaks to me in English. When she turns to mama, she speaks to in Mandarin. When she turns mm-hmm. to our nanny, she speaks in Spanish without missing a beat. But it's always in the target language. That is a misconception that I think, in my experience, is is so different. I think it's time. I don't think it's yeah. this magic, unquantifiable ability that a child's brain has. I do think children are amazing and brilliant and super special. And I love my kids to death, but I think that's what it comes down to is time. Yeah, I agree. No, I think that's a really important thing to point out. And it's such an easy thing to say, oh, it's too late for me. I'm too old. Instead of saying, no, actually, I just, I'm not willing to spend the time. Exactly. This is not important enough for me to prioritize it in my life. Exactly. That's hard. We have a million things on the go. We've got a house to manage. We've got bills to pay. We've got clients. We've got podcasts to interview on and things like this. And it's like a kid doesn't have that. I mean, her responsibility is to play. Yeah. That's it. Like she doesn't have anything else, you know? If you are listening to this episode and you're thinking, you know, whatever the false belief pattern is, I don't have enough time. I should have learned it when I was a kid, or my father was German and he never taught it to me when I was growing up. It's his fault. No, you can put the time in today. It doesn't really doesn't matter how old you are. As long as there's not something physically wrong with your brain, at any age, I think that you should be able to learn another language. Yeah. And in fact, it can help stave off some of the neurodegenerative. I mean, the evidence is pretty strong on that, that it it does help postpone the neuroplasticity of your brain. Yep. And even if you have, you know, things like dyslexia, as you've proved, like that doesn't, 
I think that's another area where people can think, I, I, I'm not gonna be able to learn a language because my brain works this way. I actually don't know in terms of the literature, but I think I remember reading somewhere that dyslexia actually in some ways can be advantageous in learning a foreign language. Have you, have you read anything like this? Or you, you... I haven't read, but I can tell you from my own experience, insights, point of view mm-hmm. that, okay, I could not read and write until I was in grade five, probably, you know, grade four, grade five, I didn't know how to read. So I got very good at listening. I remember my mother or the teacher or a resource teacher or something like that reading to me mm-hmm. and me being able to repeat back verbatim everything that was said and in context and summarize and understand the certain points. And I was super, super clued in. Like I'm a voracious reader right now. I love physical books. I listen to a lot of audiobooks. I love podcasts. I love to learn. I think it's one of the side note. I think that I have such a love to learn because I dropped out of school at 12 years old. And that idea of learning being work was never like, I was never yeah, beat over the head with that. Right, you know. Right. So I read on average about a hundred books a year. Last year, I was a bit of a slacker. I read 86 books last year, but a lot of other years, of I books. read 110, 120 books. I do count audio books in that. I of have course. A, an audible subscription. People that and, say audiobooks are not is not real reading, I will punch them in the face. I think that yeah. is silly. <laughs> <laughs> so I think that maybe being dyslexic has helped me with learning another language because I can watch the TV and I I'm my I don't know, I'm just so in tuned with it, you know, mm-hmm. with this form of learning. Fully present. Yeah. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. And not to your, to your point about not getting disillusioned or getting kind of beaten over the head with the academic system and having not been forced to learn a language in that academic setting either. I think so many learners, they they develop kind of a phobia around foreign sure. languages, I think, because well, they learned it in the worst possible way you can. Yeah. But uh, I still had baggage from that as well, because I was told there was something wrong with my brain. Therefore, I had enough trouble with English that we don't want to overwhelm you with learning French. So what does uh, eight-year-old Mikel hear? Uh, You're stupid. And while everyone else can do this, you can't do this. So trust me, I had baggage of my own to work through. Um, Exactly the opposite type of thing or, or trippy thing was that when I was diagnosed with this, they actually did tests on me to see if I was stupid. And I got a 147 IQ. So they knew that I was extremely intelligent, near genius level intelligence, but there was just something that did not function right. And now we know it's dyslexia. And mm-hmm. actually dyslexia is not really a big deal. Lots of people have it. It's, common, it's actually very yeah. common. Yeah. You know? yeah. I think but it's undiagnosed a lot, isn't it? Yeah. Exactly. So I think it's just trying to figure out what are your strengths and Mm -hmm. then playing to those strengths and not trying to push through on something which doesn't work for you. Like I said, Netflix was amazing for me. Maybe for you, it's the worst possible option out there. Maybe reading is the absolute best or maybe studying Mm -hmm. from a book and maybe that works for me. Me studying a book, like I I can read a book, but if I had to get a textbook and then do grammar exercises... I would blow my brains out. Like I would just like (laughs) my motivation would sink to zero and I've tried, you know, I last about six minutes and I go, no, there's no fun. You're not alone. I, I think there are people out there. I've kind of changed my position on this. I think there are people out there that 
enjoy learning that way and because they enjoy it, it can work. I think interest and motivation are the primary drivers of any skill acquisition. So if you want to use a textbook, go for it. But there are very, very few people that would ever choose reading a grammar textbook over watching Netflix or reading Harry Potter or something. I mean, sure, fun gets done. Well, uh, any final words of encouragement or advice for somebody? Maybe let's two groups here. So group A, they are brand new to learning a foreign language. They have no idea where to get started. They're overwhelmed. So that's group one. Group two. They've been at it a while, but they just kind of hit a plateau. They've lost motivation. They're struggling to, to keep going on a day-to-day basis. They hear you talk about putting in 600 hours in a, a year, and they think, oh, I'm struggling to put in six hours in a year. What would you say mm-hmm. to that group? All right. Well, let's work backwards. Okay. I would not concentrate on the 600 hours. What I would do is exactly what I did do, and that's get out a calculator and work backwards from that. Mm-hmm. Then just focus on like, all right. I need to do 30 minutes a day. And and like 600 just happened to be my number. I mean, your number could be 100. It could be 50. I mean, I don't know what it is. I would say that it's best to do every single day to do for the same amount of time and at the same time of day so that you form a habit. So then you just sit down. Like I set an alarm on my phone. Well, I set an alarm on my phone for everything that I need to do. So I have like 10 Mm -hmm. alarms on my phone and it's like, it's always five minutes before. So it's like, oh, I've got an interview with John Fotheringham. Okay. I go, I brush my teeth. I uh, use the bathroom and I come down and I sit and I'm here. I do the exact same thing with studying Spanish. Even if I'm studying by myself, I will set an alarm for that. But work backwards from whatever your goal is and then figure it out on a daily basis. All right. Monday to Friday, I'm going to study for 30 minutes Russian lessons. And you just know that that is what you have to do. And don't break it. Ever, because as soon as you make an excuse to break it once, the chances of you breaking it the following day are going to go up probably tenfold. Just push through. Like I said, even if you're hungover, even if you're tired, even if you're sick, even whatever the excuse is, just do it. Don't set goals which are going to be so big that they become overwhelming. Don't go from zero to I'm going to study six hours a day because Mikkel's daughter does that at five years old. I'm going to do the same thing. No, like, I mean, Pick something that you really think you can accomplish, and then you can always build on it. I mean, I think I started with an hour a day. Then, like I said, I did two hours of italki. Then I did two hours of italki and two hours of Netflix at night. I think that's another good way to do it is to break it up. Some before work in the morning and some before bed at night. You're going to get different benefits from each one. In the morning, if you have a fresh mind and you know nothing else is in there and nothing else is on the go. At nighttime, you're putting it in right before you sleep. So now your subconscious can work on it and solve problems using that part of your brain for you. It also helps you tune out from other things in your life. And Mm -hmm. you can drop these things without having to worry about whatever the day was. You know, it can be a good relaxing measure. So that's that part of advice. What was the other question? The first one you asked was advice for people who... It was the absolute beginners, but I, I... I think from what you just said, it could be the same thing. It's just maybe yeah. reworded, but I think, I yeah. think you guys get the concept and at least how my methodology for learning languages works. And all right. I am not uh, a polyglot who speaks 11 languages. Like you had so many amazingly smart people on your show. I am just a guy who's gone out there and learned a couple languages but it is a huge part of my family. We deal with it every single day. I raise my kids to speak multiple languages. My wife speaks four languages. I've interviewed you on the show, John. I've interviewed 
Ollie Richards and Chris Broholm and so many other amazing language learners. I've studied about language learning like a ridiculous amount because it's mm-hmm. super interesting. It I've even done big supercut mashup interviews on my podcast of the best language learners, which your clips got featured several times. So if you guys oh, go to expatmoneyshow.com, you didn't know that? Didn't I, I didn't, send it to you? I did not know that. No. Well, All right. Let's put that in the show notes. We too. will. We will yeah. for sure. But if you guys go to expatmoneyshow.com, you'll be able to find all the other language episodes yeah. on there, as well as episodes about immigration and moving to yeah, other countries. Yeah. And- anyone is going to be moving abroad, definitely go, go check out Mikhail's site. I mean, everything you'd ever want to know about tax optimization and paperwork and visa. I mean, it's all there. It's all there exactly. in, in one six, place. Six so. years of podcasting in this niche and seven years of running a newsletter in it. So lots there. Yeah. Good stuff, my friend. Well, thank you again for your time. Happy birthday again. Thank you very much. Maybe I'll have to be there for the big four maybe. We'll have to make that absolutely, happen. Absolutely. Absolutely. You got to be on the newsletter and then you'll hear about it on the newsletter okay. and then that's what we'll, we'll figure it out. Sounds like a plan. Nice one. Thanks, John. Right, brother. I appreciate it. Good to chat again. And uh, yeah, we'll talk soon. Thank you for listening to the Language Mastery Show. Again, you can find show notes at languagemastery.com forward slash show. Before you continue on with your day, take a quick moment to choose one small tip or takeaway from today's episode to apply in your life. Listening to podcasts is a great first step but the real magic only happens when you translate information into action. Also, if you want to help keep this show going, there are three key things you can do to help. Number one, leave a five-star rating and a written review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or whichever app you use to listen to podcasts. Number two, join my free newsletter called Language Mastery Monday, in which you get weekly tips, tools, and resources for building an effective language immersion environment anywhere in the world. And number three, if you're learning Japanese or Mandarin Chinese, check out my detailed immersion guides called Master Japanese and Master Mandarin. Both provide step-by-step instructions for how to immerse yourself in Japanese or Chinese right where you are. Learn more at JapaneseMastery.com and ChineseMastery.com. And you can use the code SHOW, that's S-H-O-W, to get 25% off either guide. All right, we'll see you next week for another episode of the Language Mastery Show. Until then, happy learning.